and welcome to Fireside Friends. This is episode 26. I'm Ryan Rasad. With me are my co-hosts, Alan Ibrahim. Hey, hi, it's me. Hello. And Katie Marie. Hello, it is me with the technical difficulties. Yep. This is our second try recording this <laughs> intro. <laughs> uh, how are y'all doing today? Very good. Alive, cold, very cold. We had nice weather yeah. and then we had bad weather. Yeah, oh my god, okay. So, like, the two days that we had, like, really nice weather were the happiest I have felt in months. And then it had to be miserable again. And now no. it's just, like, blah. I don't know. Did you Did you get actual snow, Ryan? No, no, we didn't get snow. Everybody else seemed to get snow, mm. but, like, uh, uh, down here, it was like, yo, check out this rain. Oh, yeah. Check out this nice rain. Yeah. We did have some pretty intense rain here, but, yeah. I mean, it's 70 degrees right now. It was 74 earlier, so yeah, having was... a nice winter. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, 60 degrees today, and I think it's going to be nicer tomorrow, so hopefully get some of that, uh the positive vibes going with yeah uh the the nice weather that's not supposed to be happening in february last year we got some snow uh because it was like when firewatch came out and i started playing it and i was like oh i should go to bed now and then i got a text that's like oh school's closed well (laughs) i guess i keep playing firewatch i guess um but that was last year that's that seems like forever ago now. Um, it's worth noting that by the time you hear this, this podcast is going to be one years old. Yay! We're old. We're happy old. Happy birthday! Yeah, happy birthday podcast. The simple cast subscription eating away all my money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, in honor of a year of Fireside Friends, we are going to be changing things up around here. Um, if you listened to the last episode, you may have picked up on this, but we are no longer going to be due a segment one. Um, because, well, one, I don't have time to edit uh, more than an hour's worth of audio anymore, really. Um, and also, I think the strongest parts of this podcast are when we all get together and just talk about something that we all did, um, something that we read or watched or played or whatever. And so, I think just doing that would be it would put a tighter focus on these episodes and make them maybe a little more fun to listen to. And also, it leaves us with some space to be like, if we don't want to do one of these like book club type episodes, we might want to do like a mental health chat or like a trans cast or something like that and so uh we're just we're playing around with stuff right now uh given our situations and stuff and so uh yeah we're just gonna wing it i guess and figure some stuff out uh now that we're a year in and we have some ideas to work with so yeah that's the state of the podcast right now um, do you want all want to talk about the movie that we watched for this podcast episode? Definitely. Very much so. I'm ready to talk about a movie. Yep. 
love the movies. Alan, what did we watch for this podcast? Well, Ryan, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> cut to the trailer. No, don't cut to the trailer. Cut to me. We watched Pan's Labyrinth, uh, the Guillermo del Toro film from 2006. Yep. Yay. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking at the IMDb page Radical. right now. I got it. got that off the top of my head. Um, I think, yeah. was I the one who recommended this? You were. Yes, you were like, you were. Pan's Labyrinth episode. And I was like, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it, and I should probably watch it. So let's do that one. I mean, yeah. the most Fireside Friends thing ever is that, in part, our choice of film this week was based on a Guillermo, a tweet. <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> at the time, Guillermo del Toro was tweeting something like, hey, the themes of Pan's Labyrinth apply more than ever today because we <laughs> live under a person who's very similar to the villain of this movie that I made. And the themes apply yeah. today. And they do. Yeah. They do. Yep. Boy, do they. Oh, gosh. It's a good one. I, all right. Yeah, it's real good. What did y'all think of it? Yeah. Uh, so I I didn't know what to expect when I sat down to watch this. I've heard of Pan's Labyrinth, but, like, I thought it would totally go more in, like, the fantasy direction, just from what I've mm. heard of it and stuff. And so... When it turned out that it was, like, way darker than I thought it would be, um, and just way more gross and, like, unpleasant, I yeah. I was I was really surprised, and I ended up really, really enjoying it a lot. Um, and it definitely makes me want to watch more of Del Toro's uh, filmography. So, yeah, I really liked it a lot. Katie, what about you? Nice. Okay, so I had watched maybe less than half of the movie years ago. I mean, um, my parents bought it, I'm pretty sure, as soon as it came out. And I remember seeing part of it. I remember getting pretty disgusted at the scene where the dude got his face smashed in with the bottle. Yeah. And I remember... Very, very vague things. But so anyway, you know, I'm way older now and I decided, hey, this is going to be awesome to watch because I love Guillermo del Toro's other movies. Um, So, yeah, I like basically decided to rewatch the movie with like a completely fresh perspective. And I absolutely loved it. There are so many aspects to it that I really, really enjoy. And um, particularly the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um as well as like the the color choice and color direction, mm-hmm. I think um, I really loved, which is the theme in um, some of his other movies that I've noted specifically. Um, but I honestly think like Guillermo del Toro is one of my personal favorite directors, and so this was just a treat, and I cried a lot, and <laughs> um, it was really awesome. I'm really happy that we watched this for the podcast, and I'm glad that we're discussing it, especially in today's climate. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so before this, I had seen Pacific Rim only. <laughs> That's the only Del Toro movie I've seen, which, like... Really? Which counts but doesn't, because, like, <laughs> his aesthetic is all... It's like his anime, right? It's his yeah. aesthetic, like, the things that he loves right. is in that movie, but, like, it's not, like, a super serious like deal it's just like here are these robots fighting and stuff like that so yeah. coming coming at this it's like okay this is what del toro this is a del toro style 
with like a message behind it and yeah i really yeah was really surprised by it um what about you alan uh, yeah, everything y'all said and more. The the more times that I see it, I see it. Like I've actually now seen it three times, which is appropriate because this movie deals with a lot of like fairy tale style rule of threes. Like everything happens in threes in this film. Uh, the first time was in a Spanish class in high school where we watched. Oh wow! We, <laughs> yeah, so that was a weird. We watched a lot of weird films and TV in that class. This seems heavy f- even for high school. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Yeah, especially the violence and the yeah, the gross stuff. Um, but I I don't know, I guess in our high school we we're just like, Oh cool, the frog threw itself up. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so I watched it then, l- talking about it from a fairy tale perspective and talking about it from a historical perspective. Then I watched it again like a year ago for a film class. And that was more of a cinematic, like, storytelling thing. And then now this time I've kind of been looking at it just for the themes and the stuff I never picked up on before. And there's yeah. just so many moments that, like, especially when you know where it's going to go, that they unravel so much nicer when you, like, have an expectation of, like, oh, and then the Rebels are going to come out eventually. And so the first time you see the Rebels, it's, like, really exciting because you know they're going to do some shit. And, yeah. Yeah. and then just the whole theme of, like, escapism and being able to retreat into your mind and the idea of like and i don't know who the quote is attributed to but del toro based sort of the character of ophelia on this idea of like uh brave uh rebellion and brave like reluctance to do what people tell you to do like the reason that mm-hmm. ophelia the main character does a lot of her stuff where like so like she eats the grapes you know and with the pale man and you're like why would she right. eat those grapes how foolish of her and it's like no she's doing it because she shouldn't do it and this, uh, that whole idea of, like, willful rebellion from a young child and their sort of, like, whimsical look at the world. That that scene is so good. Yes. That is, like, man? yeah. For that sure. is, like, the, like, like, Junji Ito, like, fucking Silent Hill shit that right. I just cannot get enough of. And I'm glad that he leaned in that direction for that part specifically. Because that was 100% my shit. Um, and, like, the design of the, like, hallway mm-hmm. and just, like, all the, f- like, food on the table and stuff. That was awesome. I love that scene. Me too. It really helps that all of the, like, little parts that you, all the little trials feel very bespoke and, like, crafted. Like, all oh, they really yeah. worked on this set to have a very specific creepy vibe. And, like, the Pale Man scene, the reason it's so famous is because it is such a like you can see yourself in there and it feels claustrophobic when she's trying to run away and like draw the door or whatever and all the food yep. is like super beautiful and the pale man as a concept is so creepy like his hands are on his eye yeah and his eyes are on his hands yep. yeah and then he <laughs> like with the hands. puts them up on his face and just like slowly like outstretches his fingers and then like the creepy way he like runs where he's all jerky looks like a chicken kind stuff. of like he just Yes, and he has like his arms stuck out while he's running, so he can see. And I'm like, look at his like flabby body. <laughs> so, Katie, yeah. can, can we talk about how Katie's met that person? Oh yeah, that that's true. I have met uh, Doug Jones. Um, he played both uh, Pan or the Fawn and the Pale Man, and um, yeah, he's actually like a really okay. So he is like the epitome of a gentleman to me. 
Like, he's very refined, and he's very formal in how he speaks. He seems like, I don't want to say caricature, but it's like a, such a proper person. And he's very, very polite, and just like, a generally sweet dude. But it's also really cool how he has played so many monsters, I suppose, mm-hmm. and has been like the face of so many creepy creatures. And it's like, well, look at this this guy. He's just so fancy Victorian, super <laughs> great posture man. <laughs> He's played all of these like things that genuinely terrify me um, mm-hmm. because that's that's a lot of what his roles are. Um, right. And I don't know. Yeah, it was just super cool. And he's a super cool dude. And it it's funny to me to watch movies where he plays the part. And I'm like, that is nothing like how he is as a person. Yeah. So um, it's really neat. Even even the fawn is like, yo, you're fucking shady as hell. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's a scary fawn. I don't know. It's I feel like it's. I was about to say that it's weird that she, like, trusts the fawn, but, like, maybe it doesn't, given how, like, she seems set upon, like, finding any means to escape, or, like, any means to, like, get away from her situation, or maybe she's, like, willing to buy into the fact that she's a princess, but I would not trust that fawn with anything ever. I mean, even um, Mercedes said, like, her mom told her not to trust fawns. Yeah. So. Yeah, ton- tons of like, here's the fairy tale archetype that you know and understand, and then like here's the way it actually looks, because that's kind of more accurate to the original text of different fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you read um, Cinderella for sure. example, and it ends with the sisters having to dance in hot ironing <laughs> right. boots or whatever right. until they die. Like yeah. that kind of stuff is more right. what fairy tales were, and so Del Toro right. is like pulling from those ideas, and then putting it against the backdrop of a version of Spain that is I think it's like in during World War II if I'm not mistaken and just it's a like really 1944 so yeah yeah sort of like mid to late World War II mm-hmm. really bleak but really like lived in kind of thing like they her Ophelia and her mother go to this like small town led by uh the the villain of this film creepy smile watchman well it's isn't it a military outpost or it is yeah they just live on it, the military yeah. outpost yeah but they make a point yeah. to like like people live there and just like uh, some of them just kind of like hang out like the the cooks that hang out with mercedes are all just like we kind of work right. here we don't really like we're not part of the military we just cook for them um right and they go there and her mom married him i love the like hey how did you meet this guy how did you meet the general She's like, oh, like we met once and I didn't know about him. And then we met the second time and I guess he made me like we fell in love and no one cares because they're like, no fucking. Yeah, no, we know you didn't like what you (laughs) well, like, but in that scene, the like diner scene, he was the dude was just like, yeah, I'm sorry about my wife. She doesn't know that people don't give a shit or like he has this super reserved like does not care about socializing with other people, mm-hmm. does not care about relating to other people. Like, he's super just, like, buttoned up and not really... doesn't really care about relating to anybody at all, which I found super interesting. I Speaking of him, like, in a personality trait, I also noticed that, like, at the for the majority of the movie, he's, like, very obsessed with cleanliness, 
and is always presented as like super clean, like super slick up until the very end where he's like disheveled and has blood all over him and his mouth's cut open and he his hair isn't like perfectly slicked back and he's stumbling all over the place. I thought that was such a contrast from how he was before because even when he was like out in the rain or like, you know, beating a dude to death, he wasn't really all that bloody or like messy anywhere else except for like his hands. So, yeah. I mean, the the watch thing that I mentioned earlier is like very intentional. Like I think I read a piece of trivia that was saying his room even is structured and made to look like a clock because he's inside of it and he's obsessed because he, they talk about the watch and how the man was killed and hit his watch on the rock so that his son would know the the moment that he died. And he mm-hmm. lives his life around like scheduling and planning and so like when he smashes that dude's face and you know like oh this was the easiest way for me to do this. I'm not he himself Vidal cap the captain probably doesn't think that he's doing anything absurd he's just like oh this is the efficient way to be a terrible person to be a good fascist and yeah and so he's like constantly trying to be perfect and get everything right and like my wife she needs to be better but she also like the guy you know early on when the doctor is like oh you know it wasn't a good idea for her to travel he's like too bad i thought it was and then the doctor's like uh i how do you even know that it's going to be a son and he goes all right, it's going to be a son. Let's not even talk about that. Because everything has to well, be in control yeah. or else. Yeah. Right. It's very the like, captain is like... The captain is like super obsessed with like carrying on his sort of like legacy through yep. uh, the, the son to the point where it's like he doesn't really care about the woman at all. She's just a means to an end for this child like the only reason that he cares about this woman is because that she is carrying uh his son um and yeah so uh, for me that was the only reason why that they were even like together in the first place is that oh like he has his son on the way and he needs to just make sure that everything is perfect for him down to like the last scene where he's like, you know, just tell my son about me, you know, oh, tell my son best who yeah. I was and stuff, and just like, no, we're not gonna even mention your name. He's not even gonna yeah. tell like your that. name. Oh, that is such a good. It's it's so good, and uh, yeah. So that aspect of it is really interesting, um, and it kind of speaks to like the. St- the sterility of like like knowing that it is tra- like the tradition of like having a baby and like making sure that you just live on that whole tradition but not in a way not in like a compassionate way just like oh this is what you do this is how people live this is how people like go on not not like not even like having compassion for your child even so mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. And it's it's that's kind of ends up being his downfall is he has all these expectations of how things are going to work perfectly for him. And like clearly he suspects Mercedes of being part of something bigger uh, very yeah. early on, like when he gives her the key and he's like, is this the only key? And but he like, of course, he doesn't think she's going to betray him because everything has worked so perfectly for him because that's how ingrained power structures work. And also, right. yeah, and also there's, like, the sexist aspect right. of it where he's, where he's just like, like oh, she's, she's just, just a, a woman. woman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
But secretly, she can hide knives in her fucking apron like a badass. <laughs> Mercedes is <Yeah>. so cool. <laughs> and they telegraphed that throughout the movie, which I thought was awesome. Yep, they were like, remember, like, her, this is like, here. Chopping. Yeah, I know, her chopping like that, I need this stuff, and always cleaning it off on her apron. Mm-hmm. And then her doing that after, like, she slits his fucking mouth open. Yep. I thought it was a nice touch. She turns him into the Joker, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> and then so like my i love the the moment best moment is probably when he dies and then she says nobody's gonna know your name uh but other great moment that i only picked up on this time was the very first shot of the rebels because they spent a couple minutes being like oh there's rebels outside oh there's probably a couple of them oh they're so dumb they left behind a lottery ticket how dumb and then you know they do that like really creative thing where that goes to the tree cuts past the tree and then it's a different shot like they use it sort of like as a cut mm-hmm. past a physical object and then just perfect center shot of uh mercedes brother and like 16 horses behind him and it's like yes they've been there all along they're gonna do so much this is so good <laughs> and they do yeah. finally just like this is a rebellion and then you know the next couple scenes are like mercedes and the doctor going late at night into the into the woods and like helping out all the different nice, nice rebels who all have names and they're all charming. And one of them gets his leg amputated. Like they make you fall yep. in love with them really easily and quickly before they. I thought it was. People. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that like we don't really see a lot of the rebels until maybe halfway through. But even then, like there's only a couple scenes. It really puts the focus on the fascists, like all the like nationalists and stuff. And. It creates this really interesting effect where you feel like you're along with the fascist assholes and, like, you're realizing you're kind of in the bubble with them. Mm -hmm. And when it kind of bursts, is like, unexpected. And I thought that was super interesting, just, like, just how unexpected this, like overthrowing is even though if you're actually paying attention and you realize like the resources that the rebels have and stuff that's not it's not really surprising but i just thought it was interesting that there wasn't really an emphasis on the rebels more just the bubble that the fascists were in yeah i think that's like the kind of that's what that political ideology can do to you though is put you in that sort of bubble like i said earlier yeah. Where it's like, There's oh, just we're us. We're the only ones who matter. Also. Like yes. yeah. the the line where he's like, I want my son to be born in a clean Spain. I know. Oh yeah. I audibly was just like, ew. Uh barf. So fucking disgusting. Yeah, Eli was like, That's that's nice. Whenever Not at all. He's like, what a what a what a guy. But also yeah, level the, super. the actor who plays it all is actually really amazing. He's been in a lot of like lots of villain roles and then lots mm-hmm. of like comedic roles. Um mm-hmm. and he actually he lowered his voice an octave to play this and then it said like tried to speak as neutrally as possible because Del Toro was like, You're not creepy enough. You're a very nice man and I need you to be like <laughs> the actual worst. And he is. He's one of cinema's greatest villains now. Yeah, he's awful. Uh I think that scale, though, that you mentioned, like, you don't see a lot of the Rebel stuff also comes from the fact that, A, this movie didn't have a huge budget. Like, 
it actually uses its money really well and keeps it localized to the military base and the fairy tale stuff. And all the fairy tale things happen in like one room, you know. She doesn't like mm-hmm. go running through a fairy forest much. Uh, right. And I think I was reading something that was like Del Toro even like gave up his salary because he had enough confidence in this movie and this idea that he was like, "Yep, it's gonna people are gonna like it." And yeah, like one of the most successful international films because its message is so universal. Like we're now we we talk about the fascism stuff, but then also I think the part that can appeal to a slightly younger audience is that like belief that your fairy tales are real and it kind of like that young adult novel sort of like oh this girl reads all of her books and everyone tells them her they're full of crud but really she goes uh right when she gets to the place there's like the little bug that actually turns out to be a fairy right and yeah that really gorgeous shot where she's like you're not a fairy this is what fairies look like and then she shows like a pixie and then it's like okay Mm -hmm. and it just turns into one of those (laughs) yeah yeah it's like, yeah, that's that's what in her head. That's how the the story works out is you do your three trials and then you succeed and you win. But really, uh, she dies. <laughs> yeah. You want to know what's interesting? Yeah. Um, So when I like, you know, I watched this with Eli and Eli's probably seen it m- more than you, Alan, um, oh, because he loves oh, this movie as well. Uh, Whenever I was like, so, Eli, what do you think? Do you think it's in her head or do you think like some of this stuff was real Eli thinks that like it was real because he's like I mean her mother got better when she put the drake root and the milk under her bed and also how could she get the places she got without the like chalk door thing how could she have gotten into the captain's room with the baby to take her brother whenever you know the door was locked and stuff I was like you have a point I still think it's totally in her head but (laughs) <laughs> that is interesting yeah i mean yeah i think it is meant to be um what's the fuck ambiguous word? yes mm-hmm. it is meant to be ambiguous um i for me i thought they were going to lean more into the fairy tale stuff right when i first watched because uh to me i thought it was gonna be more like oh they're gonna focus on the fairy tale stuff and the fascism is gonna be like in the background but it's kind of the opposite where the 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 struggle between the rebels and the fascists are kind of just the center of the movie and in the periphery is the girl and just kind of the fantasy stuff and there isn't a huge focus on it i mean there's obviously enough Mm -hmm. but it is mostly about coping in this situation which i found really interesting i didn't expect that from this movie I think the question of whether or not this stuff is real, um, well, it also, it requires you to think about like, well, if it's not real, then what do the dreams, like, what do the trials mean? Because I've read mm-hmm. different interpretations of the film that are like, oh, the toad is supposed to be the fascist and it's like just a big bloated toad that takes and doesn't give. And <laughs> yeah. I, like I said, I watched this movie that in high school. That toad is so goofy, though. <laughs> it vomits <Goofy>. itself. <laughs> yeah. And it gives her a key. Yep. I thought it was going to talk. I was disappointed. Hello. It talk. <laughs> it's got like a nice British accent. Yeah. I imagined he would have yeah. like a deep, like, oh, blah, blah, like that kind of voice. But uh, yeah. yeah, he didn't speak. But yeah. but like the read. And again, like I said, I watched this movie in high school. So a lot of the t- at that time, all of the reads that I heard were just like, I think this represents this, like the clear A to B. 
Um, mm-hmm. So the frog was just like the gluttony and the ability to take and not give. And then the fawn, the, uh, not the fawn, the pale man was like Vidal himself with the eyes and with like the like food and all of the, you know, you can come here, but I'm going to, you know, t- capture you and all this stuff. I don't know. A lot of that stuff. I just think end of the day, it it's like, what do you want to believe? Because, you right. know, the fact that Ophelia dies at the end is like the movie isn't saying hey, if you believe in this stuff and you try to hold on to your narrative in your head in a time of great trouble, like, that's not a bad thing. Her dying is the end of a narrative where, like like I said earlier, you, she chooses her own death, you know? Like, mm-hmm. she doesn't she doesn't get killed. She says, oh, this is, you know, I'm going to end up dying here. And that's, that's the true victory over evil, over fascism, is to be like, I get to choose how I go out. You don't get to control me. You don't get to put me in your clockwork world, Mr. Vidal. I'm going out my way. And, and like that and, is awesome. okay. So I think it's really interesting that you say like I get to choose. I'm choosing to die here because like if you remember at the dinner with all of the I don't know I guess like important figureheads of this like fascist right. society, they are all saying we choose to be here. Like that is something that they like say, and it resounds around the room is that you know they're right. they chose to to be here. And I, I don't know. I find that interesting because it's like, did they? Who's the real right. person choosing? Well, yeah. right, well, they clear. Well, because like the fascists are like, oh, we're we get to choose to be here, but they all lose. Ophelia, yep. when she dies, goes to heaven and gets to hang out with her parents and be queen forever. Because she's the good person <laughs> with the good yeah. morals. Uh, so that was what I was thinking about. That is like. The choice to be like, oh, it's all about fairy tales and knife stuff, but the main character die, like this child character dies. Yeah. yeah, very deliberately. Like, I think no, I have a life. more cynical read of the ending than you do. Really? Oh, that it's like hopeless. A little bit. I mean, it's not hopeless. I mean that that like king and queen scene is there for a reason, obviously. But for me, I couldn't like. F- for okay. I don't think she dies by choice because her fucking asshole stepdad just shoots her out of fucking nowhere because he's a dick. And like, okay, she chooses not to sacrifice his brother. That's that part is true. But I don't think she chose to get shot. Like, I don't think she had that in the rule book. Um and like I don't know, there's just just like there's a sense of shock at the end of the movie where they find her body in the maze and she's just dying like that is just like really upsetting um and i just read it more as a tragedy than anything else like obviously there's a semblance of hope with the fact that she got to basically become the princess but in terms of like the reality of the situation like it is a tragic tale um and i think that the ending where she lives on through the kingdom and stuff is a way to lighten it up a little bit and give some hope in the situation uh but yeah i it it's it's tragic and i thought the ending was extremely sad and my read of like the fantasy stuff is like more of escapism than anything else and what what else could you do to escape the fact that you're literally dying by imagining that you're going to be in a nice ass kingdom with a fucking fawn and 
your parents queen and all these people who care about mm-hmm. you yeah so but but wouldn't you argue that her legacy lives on because the rebels remember her and they know her and they have her name and they have her story and she did help them in a meaningful yeah, way. Yeah, but she's dead. She died, dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting emotional. She still got Hang shot. <laughs> she's a <laughs> She got shot, which is like the worst. I didn't think they would kill her. Really? That's the one thing. Okay. Well, I didn't think Well, like the opening her. scene, yeah. what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> right. Oh, I don't know. I forgot about the opening scene by the time the ending happened. So I was like, oh, of course she dies because they showed her dying at the beginning of the movie. But I was like, oh, they're not going to kill her. She's a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Child death is really hard for me to deal with. Um, just because, like, children, they're kids. Like, and obviously she's a very innocent girl. Um, but, like, I don't know. I think it is both a tragedy and a victory i don't know how to describe that like there's this awful duality to the yeah. ending because like the fascists yeah. lose the rebels win bye bye fascism but also hello child death this little girl just died and is is trying to like cope with it in her head using the same method of escapism that she has been using throughout this entire movie and like just in reference to the scene where she's like in the the throne room, I suppose, reunited with her dad and her mom. Um, I've noticed that in like the fantasy world, there's a lot of like golds and reds and it's very warm looking, even in the place with the frog and the pale man. Like both of those had a lot of like warm colors, whereas like palette watch 2017 um a lot of like the the forest and the house were very blue and cold and like just kind of uh i don't know like empty and like dead looking well yeah well the thing that i noticed too was like when it cut to like the rebels the forest was more lively and there was more like particles and Mm -hmm. stuff waving around but when it was like the fascist, it was very like yeah, like you said, cold and rainy and, and stuff. Like blue and yeah. I mean, like yeah. even when um the rebels start attacking the little hold area, there's like all of this fire and these explosions and stuff like that, and that's very red. That's very yellow and gold, and it was just like all over at the end. And I was like, huh, look, mm-hmm. it's it's doing its thing, um. And I also find it interesting in that respect that the fairies and uh, the fawn were so blue and so, like, cool colored. Mm. Um, Even the, like, little labyrinth stone area um, was the same. So it's like, I don't know, as as a theme thing, that kind of perplexed me. Um, And he barely... I mean, definitely in the last scene in the throne room, he's a lot warmer. He's a lot more yellow and his hair looks more like like a soft brunette reddish color. But it's like, that's not how he looked before. Even, I mean, like, there is a slight difference, but the difference is still there. So um, I guess, like, thematically, that's kind of confusing. And I suppose it goes back to him being, like, somewhat untrustworthy. Um, because like, otherwise I don't know, like that is, I mean, obviously it's there for a reason. It's very deliberate. Um, 
but why? If anybody else knows, please let me know. Well, you can read it as, like, maybe her, like, project, maybe, like, it's saying that she's also suspicious of him, and also there's, like, a source of anxiety, because he, he straight up shows up in her room unannounced, right. you know? So, for me, it was maybe just, like, it's a it's a sense of escapism, but also he, or she is, like, really skeptical of the fawn, and thinks the fawn is really creepy even though he's a means to this kind of fantasy because he's he's there to facilitate the trials more than he's there as like support or something like Mm -hmm. that you know right the fawn oh that's sorry yeah that's kind of my read of it sorry go ahead the fawn is deliberately creepy because the fawn is not the like because because in a normal fairy tale the fawn would be the character that's like you have these trials three here's the here's the goal good job you did it but in this because going back to what i was saying earlier it's all about her like willful defiance of the roles assigned to her like that's why she doesn't want to wear the dress that's why she doesn't want to listen to her she doesn't want to ever call him her dad and that's why when the final thing that the fawn says is get me your brother she does that and then he says now Give me the blood of your brother so that you can go to heaven. And then that's how the ritual yeah. is complete. She says, nope, now I'm not listening to you because now you're telling me to hurt somebody that I love. And so that is what ends up leading to her dying in, in the real world is because she doesn't go. The brother survives and she made that choice. Like her being able to make that choice is her victory, in my opinion. That's like what she's trying to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even, like, the scene where the fawn comes back. Because the fawn just is like, oh, you ate the grapes. You're, we're done here. Yeah. We're, yeah. It's over. Bye. You fucked up. And it's very abrupt. But the moment where things like the things get really bad and the fawn comes back and is like, okay, we'll give you one more shot for this. Like, there is some, like, she, doesn't she hug yes, the fawn? Yes, Yes. And the lighting is a little bit brighter there, too. Um. So, you know, I don't know. That's kind of my read of it. Yeah. I don't know. Mercedes, best character. I'm still a For real? Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Yeah. Just to go from, like, such quiet determination when Vidal is like, oh, make the food again. Yeah, you drink the coffee because it's burnt and all of, like, oh, she listens for so long because she knows it's all going to work out. And then when it does, she's like, oh, yes. I'm going to savor this victory so much. It's like incredibly satisfying to watch her from the inside. Just again, because of her, her, it's like a sexism thing. Like again, because of all of that, it's like, Oh, this is easy for me. He's never going to suspect that I'm doing anything nasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can just steal. Yeah. Mine. I mean, she straight up says, this is why I got away with it because you thought I couldn't really do anything because I'm a woman. Right. Exactly. Oh man. And then the scene with the doctor and the person that the cabin tortures was really mm-hmm. good. Um, where it's like, you know, why did you disobey me? Why did you, like, put him out of his misery? And it's like, I don't want to be the person who just follows orders without questioning them. That was Yeah, there you go. That was cool Back too. to that. Yeah. Back to the fascism state. The only way to beat fascism is to not fucking do it. Don't listen. Willful disobedience. And the like, the also the uh also that moment I like too um, with where she's at the rebel base and she's talking about like, 
am I am I really like a bad person for working for this person even though that I'm helping the rebels as well just like am I cowardly for living with this person and working for them and cooking their breakfast and stuff um, I thought that was a good moment too and you can make that argument similarly with like Ophelia versus her mom Carmen because Ophelia is all about like I'm not gonna listen to what people tell me to I believe in fantasy uh, magic is real and we can do anything if we try and our mom is like I married a guy because he was gonna hurt me and because it's the safest way for me to live is to have his baby and uh, this is like safety for me Carmen is such a realist and like that's why when uh, Vidal finds that finds the mandrake root under the bed her mom like gets mad at her and she's like oh feel like why like why can't we just have if we just listen if we just do everything the the fascists tell us to do then we're gonna live yeah like why can't you and just sort of, be like, normal you know yeah exactly yeah and like why can't you just wear the dress that i made you and be a pretty girl and follow the roles and but like you can't hate i don't hate carmen her mom for thinking stuff like that because again she's covering her ass she's yeah. covering her child's ass in a time where it feels like you're being attacked from all sides like it makes perfect sense that she is so afraid of vidal i would be he's terrifying yeah same yeah <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, what do you make of the fact that the captain can't see the fawn at the end? Well, like, yeah, it was in her head, I believe. But, like, could he hear him, the fawn, is what I what I want to know. I because, know. like, I don't think so. Um, when it cuts to him starting to enter, like, the, the inner circle of the labyrinth, um, you can still hear the fawn's voice. And it's, like, it sounds farther away and is, like, echoing as if, like, you know, it mm. was traveling to him. So I do wonder if he could hear it or not i guess it's again uh ambiguous yeah i was just thinking of the scene where like the root they throw the fire they throw him in the fire and he like starts yeah. screaming uh. and i was wondering if they could hear the screaming because like that would raise some questions for me if i was like magic isn't real i'm gonna throw this thing in the fire Why what the this fuck this screaming? thing is screaming yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't I don't think anybody so. heard it screaming, um, but I think, I mean, it was just, like, a precursor to the the mom's baby, you know, um, starting to yeah. freak out. Uh, also, I want to I wanna ask, did, did any of you pick up on the, like, uh, a lot of, like, uterine symbolism? There was a lot of, like, uterus-looking yeah. things. Um, like, there's... You know, the artwork of the pale man. He looks like a uterus over these things. Hang on. I'm going to, like, look for it real fast. Hang on. But, yeah, no, I thought that was so interesting Um, that there were actually, like, a lot of, I guess, like, feminine-looking uh, parts in the movie. Yeah, and like this, the I mean, the most overt one obviously is like the scene where she opens the book and there's just like yeah. blood everywhere, and her mother is like. Here bleeding. it is, the fallopian imagery. Um. I mean, yeah, I think that like like I was saying earlier, if you want to like take all of the reads of yeah. the fantasy stuff, all of that is uh, supposed to like be recalling something about the real world. 
So all the fallopian imagery is like the femininity and the pregnancy and the mom and all of that stuff is like bleeding into the fairy tales, like the tree and like the different, like the blood and all of that stuff. Uh, the fairy fairy tale world and the real world like intertwine a lot. Yeah. And then to answer your question from earlier, Ryan, I only I just kind of saw the captain not knowing the fawn because he doesn't believe in fairy tales. So if you don't believe it, you don't see it. Um, and that was going to be right. kind of his downfall. Um, but that was just sort of my read on all of that. Good stuff. Yeah. I actually didn't notice some of this imagery the first time around. So that's, that's well, I'm always looking out for hoo ha's. <laughs> I mean, I mean, from the moment that uh, they're like, wear the dress, and she's like, I don't want to wear the dress. You're like, oh, a lot of this movie is about like uh, uh, not wanting to line up with like feminine gender roles and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. Same thing with Mercedes, same thing with Ophelia and the dress, same thing with her mom and the baby, like all that's, it's all there. So that's, I think, where that imagery is coming from. Yeah. And also, like, obviously the fact that, again, so much of the cabin's obsession is with the yep. Yep. son and passing stuff on, passing on genes, if you will. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Very true. Quite the cinematic experience. Quite a, quite a journey. Quite a, an entertaining journey. It, yeah, it's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, me too. Katie, you, Katie, you brought the the music earlier, and I definitely like the the main theme, the theme from Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like it sounds like I think it's actually based on a uh, a nursery rhyme, mm-hmm. like an old Spanish nursery rhyme, because it's supposed to sound like. It gets stuck in your head, and you could hear it being sung over and over again. The da 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 that whole thing. Yep. It's beautiful. Beautiful work. Man. It's both everyone both beautiful and melancholy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I thought a lot of the, the soundtrack was beautiful. Like, when she is, like, first entering the labyrinth and is, like, looking around and seeing, like, all of the I I don't know sticks or whatever <laughs> and it just has like this very very magical like backing music and um the music itself is actually very present throughout the entire movie like it it super sets the tone for what's happening um and I just was so specifically is when I took like serious note of it is when she was entering the the labyrinth on her own and like being led by the fairy and looking around because it sounded so genuinely like whimsical and magical and I was like this is incredibly like well done it's like I'm sitting in and watching like an orchestra like paint this this imagery here and in addition to that there was like just speaking of a uh, different performance different like performance mediums is like uh how she has this repetition when she's talking to her brother and she's like, hermano, hermano, you know, like that kind of thing. I thought that was very poetic. Yep. And I don't know, there was just like those small scenes of repetition really were incredibly impactful. So. Oh, and there's that scene where he's like talking to his tongue, the brother, like the story yes. about the flower. That was good. Yeah, it was a lot of good stuff. And it's packed too. Like it's it it, cut, it comes in under two hours yep. for a movie that's like yeah. about two distinctly different adventures that kind of intertwine, and it manages to do all of that and keep it tight. 
and like small scale is like very impressive very very good stuff it's not it's also not a movie where you could watch and be like well i'm gonna carry on with my day that was a good watch you're just like sitting in the credits just like fuck i was crying (laughs) i was actually choking up earlier on this podcast when you were talking about her dying i was like don't cry don't cry don't cry don't cry and um anyway no whenever the credits were rolling i was like sobbing and my cat was sitting on the couch with me and i was like thank you for being here kitty and i was like petting her and stuff (laughs) no this was i wouldn't say like brutal even though there definitely are some brutal scenes but it is like you really feel this movie is is how i yeah how i feel about it it's just like Bam! It's there. Emotion. Impactful. Think about it. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And again, the fact that it feels ever more approaching reality and presentness. Because when I watched this originally, it was like, oh, the <laughs> World War II is crazy. Spain was a bad place for a little while. Oh, man. <laughs> now it's like, <laughs> we live in it. Oh, no. Oh, it's coming right now, isn't yep. it? We're a few feet away yeah. from these these types of stories happening. Oh man! But hey, there's hope that the fascism will be defeated because that's what happens in this movie. That's what's gonna happen in real life, right? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Gotta have some hope. Gotta have some no hope. more Nazis. <laughs> nah, fuck, fuck Nazis. Uh yeah, that's. That's a discussion. Is there anything else? Or did we cover all of our bases here? I think we did. I mean, like, mostly, again, Pilot Watch 2017, I really wanted to bring up, like, the themes of the colors. Um, But other than that, yeah, just my interpretation is totally escapism. And uh, makes me sad. Very sad. (laughs) Who's cutting onions? Yeah. What about you, Alan? Definitely, definitely <laughs> a movie that I want to like show to not only like film writers but like students. Just like this is how you tell, because you know I think we spoke with Sean between segments when our friend Sean was on an episode of this podcast about the life of Pi mm-hmm. and how he doesn't like that film because it does the thing where it like feels like it's lying to the viewer, whereas I think this film is like, no, we're not lying to you. A lot of this is re- it probably real, but even if it's not, it matters as much as the real, quote, right. real life stuff. It matters just as much. Mm-hmm. It, right. It can't be discounted. Like, even if even if you don't ascribe to the reading that the fairy tale stuff is real, it's not meaningless. Precisely. Uh, as a result. Yeah. Real things happen as a result of escapism that we retreat to, which is a lot of the message of the movie. So, yeah, definitely incredible. One of the, One of my all-time faves. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely on my list of favorites. And again, I didn't expect it to be that depressing, but I guess that's our world. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no, yeah, I I have a new a new a like rebirth of appreciation for Guillermo del Toro because of this film, and ho- hopefully we watch more of his movies because there's another one that I thought was really interesting and just like with the use of cinematography that maybe we can discuss, but we talking Crimson Peak or what? Yes, we are talking. Hell Crimson yeah. Peak. Crimson Peak owns. It's so good. It's like watching <laughs> like a theater, 
uh, play, just with the the lighting and everything. Mm, anyway, yeah. no, I love that movie. It's not as like well received as Pan's Labyrinth for sure, but like neither was Hellboy, or you know whatever. Hellboy two is amazing. I uh, think whatever. All <laughs> These are other movies. You're right. All right, I think that's gonna be it for Pan's Labyrinth talk. I think we covered all we wanted to cover. Uh, let's move on to however we end this podcast nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Housekeeping. I used to call it housekeeping. I'm not into that anymore because I don't want to edit the music in. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm so lazy. But anyway, the way that we finish this podcast is that we tell you where to find us and where to email us and stuff. So you can find us on Twitter at podcast fireside you can send in questions to the comments at fireside friends podcast at gmail.com and you can follow and rate us on itunes stitcher and google play and we have a tumblr page and i just updated the last episode today because i'm an idiot and i forgot to do it until now <laughs> so you can do that you can follow us on tumblr you're probably not going to get it on time because unless i'll probably i'll probably put and you know what? Now that I'm gonna say it on here, I'm gonna post. I'm gonna post it on Tumblr on time this time. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you like the show, review us on iTunes. Tell a friend about us. Spread the word. Uh, like I said, we're gonna be trying new stuff around here. Um, and I think for this episode, at least, it worked out pretty well. Um, and hopefully, we can do more stuff like this in the future. And hopefully, you'll like it. And continue listening to this silly podcast and uh i think that said um we should start getting in the habit of like listing what we're going to be doing on the podcast like on the podcast so people can keep up with us um but we don't have anything prepared for this time <laughs> <laughs> sorry as always uh, as always, but okay, we'll work something out. We'll post what we're doing next episode on Twitter because I'm, in my mind at least, I'm juggling multiple ideas and I need to figure out what I want to do. But uh, we'll try to be better about telling y'all ahead of time what we're going to be doing so y'all can actually follow along with us because now that we're taking this new direction, we need to be on top of that game a little bit more. Yes. So we'll work on that. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you all for listening to Fireside Friends. We really appreciate it. Uh, good luck out there, and don't forget to take care of yourself. Wait, I forgot to do plugs. <laughs> Alan, where can people find you on Twitter, Alan? At Alan Ibrahim, A-L-L-E-N-I-B-R-A-H-I-M. Follow it. And Katie's off the grid as usual. Yep. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tago Detective. That is spelled like it sounds. T A C O D E T E. Is that how you spell detective? <laughs> it's Taco Detective on Twitter. You already know. If you're following me, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably following me on Twitter anyway. That's just how it is. And uh, yeah, now the actual ending. Thank you all for listening. Good luck out there, and don't forget to take care of yourself. We'll see you all next time.
had to get a woo in there. 